0: Hey up, how's it going? It's Matt, you listening to episode 69 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. Cranking through him now, eh? Triple figures, not far off, that'll be it before we know it. Anyway, thanks for checking it out, I hope you enjoy it. And if you're a first-time listener, checking out my little corner of the internet for the first time, thanks to my guests this week, then welcome. Uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Why not stick around, check out some of the other episodes in the back catalogue. I've spent the last two years trying to uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. And during that time, I've spoken to plenty of people you're going to heard of. Travis Rice, Lane Beachley, Tom Carroll, there's Alex Honnold. There's a lot of them on there now. You can find them all and the show notes to this episode over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. So yeah, have a look when you've listened to this one. Right, Jeremy Jones. So it been a long time coming this one two years in fact, so when I first had the idea for the podcast in January 2017, it was actually a week before I was due to head out to Austria with Jeremy and the rest of the Jones crew for a splitboarding trip, and naturally I had it in the back of my mind, well, you know, Jeremy Jones, first guest, that'd be pretty wicked, wouldn't it? So we were there on that trip, which was a good laugh, Um, did get the worst blisters of my life on that trip, that's another story. Um, Anyway, so I planted the seed with Jeremy over dinner one night, properly chancing my arm. And uh, he seemed like he was up for it. So we agreed to do it at ISPO, the European Action Sports Trade Show, which is where we were heading after the splitboarding mission. And wouldn't you know it, ISPO was really hectic and we just never got around to it. And it was the same story last year when I thought I'd try again. Didn't work last year either. So this year, as this year's ISPO approached, I was determined to get it done. So I've been chasing Jeremy and his wife Tiffany to get it arranged for the last few months. And big up to Jeremy. He was a proper trooper. Committing to it and coming to meet me straight off his flight from the States and uh, getting straight into it, really. Now, as you're probably gathering, I've known Jeremy on and off for a while now through the snowboarding industry. I've interviewed him a few times over the years. I've worked with him on a few occasions. thing about Jeremy is he's a snowboarder to the core. He's always taking his craft and his platform extremely seriously, but he's also... And I can attest to this, having been riding with him, an absolute frother in the classic snowboard sense. Whether it's splitboarding, hiking out, jibbing around the piece, riding powder, the man loves it. Cut him, he bleeds snowboarding. It's clear. And before this chat, went back and looked at an interview I did with him about seven years ago at Freeze in London when Jones was just taking off. And uh, yeah, what struck me is just how consistent he's always been about his take on snowboarding the type of snowboarding he's into and the type of snowboarder he venerates and aspires to be. Jeremy Jones is also somebody who's made great efforts to use his not insubstantial platform to tell as varied and interesting stories as possible. Now, obviously, the biggest example of this was the deeper, higher, further trilogy. But since that project wound up, He's been making some pretty idiosyncratic snowboarding films, to be honest. I mean, take Life of Glide, the short from about 18 months ago, which was about the relationship between carving across all sideways disciplines. Right up my boulevard, that one, because I actually wrote a piece for Empora about the uh, the art of Glide a few years ago. And basically, they were different riffs on the same theme, really. Or there's this year's O to Muir, which I watched before our conversation and which I highly recommend you check out after listening to this. Now, Ode to Muir's a snowboarding film, obviously, but, you know, there's a lot going on. It's an environmental parable. It's a love letter to the Sierras. It's a very high tribute to John Muir, the high priest of uh, conservation, and the man who did more than anybody to transform America's landscape for the public good through the establishment of the national parks. It's also unashamedly political, which in our anodyne, extremely beige world of snowboarding, I mean... Um, I find it extremely refreshing, to be honest. The fact of the matter is that Jeremy Jones has consistently used his position to try and make change on a global level, whether through films like this, his work with Protect Our Winters, and it's fascinating in this conversation, as you are about to hear, to understand the scale and depths of his ambitions for these efforts and for that organisation. And of course, there are contradictions involved, which is something I also tackled him about. Someone like Jeremy, who after all is a professional snowboarder, railing against climate change is always going to be a bit of an easy target. And yeah, you know, I wanted to get his views on this fairly obvious contradiction. Uh, I also did something I don't normally do in this one. Following a massive response from an Instagram post, I did ask him for questions. Now, I got so many messages with interesting questions that I thought, yeah, you know what, I'll do a bit of that and ask Jeremy some questions directly from the listeners, which worked out really well. Now, trigger warning, I do go on my usual rant about snowboarding marketing again in this one. Getting a bit embarrassing now, isn't it? I actually deal with this subject of recurring podcast themes in Housekeeping Corner at the end of this conversation, but yeah, apologies if you're getting bored of that. But overall, some weighty themes in this one, but equally it's just a chinwag about snowboarding with somebody who's as stoked on it as anybody I've had on the podcast. So yeah, that's enough from me. Here's me and Jeremy Jones in conversation across the great divide. Enjoy. See you at the end. <coughs> But, you know, it's technology, isn't it? it's fallible in these situations. Yeah, well, it
1: ha- I mean, it happens.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you've, uh, with filming, right? You must have plenty of those stories.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit gutting, but then you ask yourself, like, was it, well, so we didn't get it on film, it was still an incredible experience, so why... <laughs> Are you that upset? You know, I mean, it hurts a little, but that's what we call a love of sport run.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. Where so, you're
1: like, well, what if you wrote it different if there was no cameras? Cause yeah. If you would, then that's not. Yeah. Smart. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you gotta kind of like give those runs to the, to the snowboard gods. Yeah, the you, Love of sport runs. And, you got
0: you got r- to rationalize it in that way.
1: Well, yeah. and you when film when we were shooting with film, it was you just knew like if you had a ninety percent success ratio, that was a good thing that seems quite high meaning like that the shot actually worked and now you know with digital in general it's like people expect to have a hundred percent right success
0: ratio obviously it's changed your approach on a practical level but has it changed your approach on a snowboarding level like having that different kind of those numbers differently
1: no I that's the whole thing is um, as my Brothers um, who started and run Teton Gravity Research I make a lot of these films with um, we've always looked at movie making as like shooting snowboarding is like shooting wildlife meaning go out and do the snowboarding that you're going to go do every day and then just document it
0: yeah well I mean that was what really came a great segue Ode to Muir but that's what really came across you know the fact that you did go on an expedition and you know, whatever backcountry mission. And it was essentially, it seemed very natural, naturalistic. Like it seemed like that's what you, you know, there was no like self for the cameras. It's literally like, right, we're going to go there. Yeah. There's this shoot. There's this peak. I like the look of that. That Valley looks nice. Those trees look nice. And and just document that basically.
1: Yeah. And, um, like since I finished higher, I mean, what goes on at Ode to Muir is the snowboarding that I've been doing the last three or four years, and we just haven't been, um, documenting it. And so when it was kind of like, all right, let's, we might as well bring some cameras on this trip, but keep, they're very small cameras. And I work with cameramen that are, um, I can't kind of, they're shooting wildlife. It's not, they are not, um center stage on this story yeah and there's certain um production companies you'll work with where like the producer or the director is really the star and they're like let me show you how rad i can get with the camera where we're like let's pretend we don't have cameras and are not making a snowboard movie and getting that vibe and intimacy is um something that i've Always seeked out and, and again my brothers have always seeked out and how do you set up athletes um for success? Like really putting the the snowboarding
0: first and the movie making second. Have you is is that a common thread through the through the projects and the films? Have you always had that goal or is that something that's evolved as you've got more experience?
1: No, that's been there from the get go. Is like not um and that's really why like tgr started um was like we want you know with the goal just to document high-end skiing without all the at that time um my brothers were actually skiing for warren miller movies where the camera operator would come in and just like dictate where you go what you do exactly how you do it and they're like we just want to put a camera on a you know, long lens, what we call a Barbie angle from far away and throw a bunch of athletes up there and just let them rip and we'll document it. Right. And, um, and that same, you know, that goes back to standard films. Um, did a great job of that, of like just trying to get out of the way of the snowboarding and let the snowboarding be the center stage.
0: Yeah. So are you, um, how you feeling about it now? You proud of it? I'm I'm
1: incredibly proud of the film. Um, And when I remember when Hire came out, I'm like, I need, I really, I was at the premiere in my hometown and I'm always someone that's like, I'll watch a movie at the, um, premiere um and then it's like i'll celebrate it and it's i move on it's done my life it's done yeah you um, don't watch
0: it again you don't i don't watch it again
1: um and watching that film you know thoughts came up i actually like life of glide and ode to mirror were like i want to do a film with simple snowboarding under the lift which was life of glide yeah um and I want to do one in the backyard where we have this environmental, um, message. Cause I tried to bring in an environmental message to deeper, further, higher. And I felt like we were, uh, hijacking the audience. And so I knew like, we kind of, we just had to call it out from the get go, um, with Ode to Muir and say, this is not your typical snowboard movie. And So when people sit down to watch it, they're not expecting like, whoa, what the hell just happened? Yeah,
0: um, Yeah, I mean, it's really ambitious. It's really... It's an unusual snowboard film because it, you know, obviously you've got the snowboarding, but then it is a metaphor for the state of the outdoors right now, particularly in the United States. And it is it's pretty high in a lot of ways like you know John John Muir is obviously like a huge figure like in environmentalism and conservation but he's not like a household name really is he like you know amongst a certain sector he is and you obviously have this like huge affinity with him and his writings I mean was that a key part of it for you to to get that story across as well
1: yeah I just um I felt like you know in in the U.S. we got all sorts of crazy shit going on and um And it was time to look back um, and listen to our forefathers. And Muir was part of an era where um, we can look back at America and be really proud of the decision-making that was going on at that time. But what was exciting for us, for one, we didn't know. We we didn't set out thinking we had a feature-length film, and we went and we documented in a manner that we'd never documented it, which was we had my, you know, we mic'd up the whole time and just incredibly natural deal. Um, but even when we went into the filmmaking process, we didn't know if Muir would simply be this, like, quote at the beginning of the film and then we'd move on. Sure. And what caught us off guard is. Um, his words were so uh, appropriate for today, and they're over a hundred years old. And it's like it was medicine for the the shit that's going on right now in the U.S. And just to hear his words today, um, it's it's really the direction that we need to be on.
0: Well, he's one of those figures, isn't he? That he's the the longer time passes, the more visionary and prophetic he actually is. Because because yeah, and and, and also. What it, it, you almost take it for granted because the national parks, for example, have been such a huge part of American life for you know, 100 just over 100 years, right? Um, but with what's going on now, it looks very progressive and very visionary, doesn't it? Like you said earlier,
1: yeah. Time is like, and again, you know, now with like protect our winners, how involved I am with politics is, um. I look back and go, God, that's amazing what they were
0: able to they accomplish. Yeah, she did it, <laughs> and it was <laughs> they a could radical do that.
1: idea. It was not, um, and we can see in Europe. I mean, I love Europe, but um, I mean, if there's a piece of flat land, there's a house on it. Like yeah. there is not, um, you know, that that concept of protecting huge chunks of terrain um for future generations was a new idea, it was a bold idea. And looking back, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we can all agree that that was a good idea.
0: Yeah, and it sort of took its place in a you know, of that era there was basically a movement that the outdoors, nature, could could do that public good, right? I mean I think it was quite an accepted part of the of the debate and the discourse really. I mean you look at someone like Roosevelt like he was obviously super integral in that decision. You know, that was part and parcel, wasn't it? Of, of, of what Well, and,
1: and I, you know, we think of it and again as like you take it for granted. But when the U.S. expanded West, they looked at forests as like as a resource fields of lumber. Yeah. Um, and the concept that nature is important for, your, for humanity um, was a new concept. And Muir with his writing really, um, captivated the country and sold that idea. And quite frankly, um, was kind of one of the most, if not the most effective environmentalists and he was able to get the whole country on board. Um, so as I've dug into trying to get the whole country on board on climate, I've naturally like seeked out how the hell mirror did it.
0: Yeah. So that's the importance of him for you. That's that legacy basically. And
1: coupled with the fact that, um, reading, you know, what's exciting is like, I, I can, we're actually like in the same spot that he wrote about the same landscape and it largely looks the same. Yeah. And what he sees when he looks out and what I see are, two different things his his intimacy with the landscape is um so much greater that it starts like adding this another dimension to the landscape when i read his words where he was and i'm like i did not see it yeah like
0: yeah well he, i mean he, he was also an artist wasn't he yes right, let's let's not forget that so this thing that we're talking about is this for you when politics works in this battle you know this this like we're talking about Roosevelt, Muir, this legacy, this bequest of public land to the nation for environmental and conservation reasons. Because obviously, like you said, you you know you're you're involved in this fight now. Is that is that the example of of it working uh, its best? Like how politics can can change?
1: Yeah, I mean, we bring into the film um, the Wilderness Act. You know, passes like by like it's something like ninety eight to two. I mean, it's and right now, you know, the biggest hang up with real action on climate is that it's a bipartisan issue. And the this protected land and the national parks and the wilderness areas is a great example of the country coming together and doing these bold moves together. Yeah. And it's exactly what we need on the
0: climate front. Yeah, when you look at the current sort of landscape in the States now, especially, like we were saying earlier, if you've got Muir at this end, it's almost like the other end of the spectrum, right? Like the the way that the current administration in particular is, is kind of dealing with this issue, right? Kind of like, you know, selling off national monuments, like even the shutdown, like the effect that had on the national parks recently. I mean, how do you keep positive in the light of this current situation.
1: Yeah, I mean it's been a um tough couple of years, but I think where my um say positivity and um motivation comes from like having a plan. Um you know there's a lot of frustration with where we're going and then with protect our winners, surrounding ourselves with really smart people that go, here's a zone we can win. Here's a plan how we can win. And then just head down and focusing on winning these small battles. And that's where, um, it's kind of this like, you know, where you loss of hope is filled with, with hope and motivation. Cause it, you know, when we, after 2016, and we knew it. Um, and, you know, people were like, it's not going to be that bad. And I, you know, I woke up the next morning. And I'm like, oh, my God, the, the whole agenda that we had been working on. And, and when I say, we, I mean, really, the country and we were on a path, it fully imploded. And that really happened. It was actually worse than we could yeah, imagine. Yeah. It wasn't
0: like we were alarmists on it. I just read a thing with... Jonathan Jarvis, like head of national parks, this piece in the garden, he was saying like when Zinke came in, it was almost like, well, it it won't be that bad. Right. You know, like how bad can it get? And and then as it went on is like, actually this is worse than we ever could have thought.
1: Yeah. So like our drama, the day after the election, it actually was, you know, we felt like it was apocalyptic and it was actually worse than that. Um, but then once we kind of like picked it up, picked up the pieces and we're like, all right, we went from peacetime to wartime and Protect Our Winners. And then the focus and motivation with a good plan where we felt like we could win. Um, that's what, that stuff's exciting.
0: Yeah. So that's what gives you positivity. So earlier you mentioned that almost the strategy for Protect Our Winners is to, to choose these battles and and work out ways of winning them. Do you mean in the political arena? Is that the main arena by which you try and affect change through that organization?
1: Yeah, so what we... I mean, first and foremost, it it sucks that the front lines of climate change is politics. When I started Protect Our Winners, I never... I'm like, we're staying out of politics. And then as I brought in the leaders on, you know, how to have real action on climate... We learned that changing light bulbs and reusable water bottles just was not going to get us where we
0: need to go. That kind of like personal action, which Yeah, is- which
1: is still very important, and you should. You know, I live an examined life, and, and we're not, I don't discredit living an examined life and personal carbon footprint reduction, but we need massive slices of carbon taken uh you know reduced and to do that we need major policy change um and so that's why our front lines is sadly political
0: yeah and is it how do you approach that then so you say you work with with different people and you're you're formulating a strategy based on different issues and is that kind of how it works
1: well I guess from like a big picture perspective, like the the scientific community has really come together um, and said, we need a global fee on carbon. What that does, that will then greatly incentivize all industry to reduce their carbon footprint large scale and they will be rewarded financially. So in the US, there is no way in hell we are passing a fee on carbon in this current administration. Now, if we can um, replace climate deniers with climate champions, they all want a global fee on carbon. But if they don't have the majority, we can't even bring that up. So our focus is to win back, um, again, just replace Um, Our government with, you know, right now it's run by climate deniers and we need it run by climate champions. And then we can put a a fee on carbon on the table.
0: So a lot of the work is about getting people out to to make change at that level, basically.
1: Yeah. So then, you know, boiling down to the strategy is we go into, um, you know, we don't need a 100% to do what we need to do. We need to go from 40. Right now we're at 49%. We need to go to 51%. Right. And so we go into um, areas where we call purple states, meaning, you know, dark red would be Republican, dark blue would be Democrat. We don't go into dark blue or dark red. We go into purple areas yep. where we have a strong footprint, meaning it's a mountainous region where we have a huge following. And we go and try and bring a bunch of non-voters to the table that yep. traditionally are not there because it's not worth our return on investment to try and change some like tried and true climate denier to a climate champion
0: yeah okay so it's more like a grassroots actual groundswell and if you
1: you know the biggest political party in the u.s is the did not vote political party and that's what we focus on it's the size of
0: the republican and democratic party combined what do you put that down to i mean it's 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 almost incredible the statistics i think you've got some in the film haven't you like the sheer amount of people that actually don't vote like any like per se let let alone on these issues
1: well it's younger it's under you know it's kind of 18 to 35 and and to um you know especially with these midterm elections which is where a lot of shit really gets done um the young people just aren't voting and and you know i don't know i'm pretty sure I was not voting when I was 22 in a midterm election yeah. for a congressman. And yeah. So I it's just <laughs> they're on to different things and yeah. that's protect our winter strategy is how do you make voting cool to a 22-year-old and get kids at the skate park talking about voting and um and I remember I'm like I need to roll into the skate park on election day and have a bunch of like punk rock skaters with I voted stickers and there's a lot of different things that we can be proud of, but I went to the skate park on election day and there was a shit ton of I voted stickers on a bunch of punk rock skaters. And uh, we need that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, obviously, Protect Our so has grown hugely. You've got, like, the UK chapter, which I know about, obviously. You've got, like, Austrian. Right. Do they follow similar strategies? Is it a top-down organization that way? Or do, do those local organizations sort of formulate their own ways of Uh, tackling the problem
1: you know to be honest we you know we were building this um pretty naturally building this international um, program and then we got so um blindsided by this election that we really and this is on a global front like the most important thing that protect our winners could do was right the ship in the U.S. So it's, um, you know, we will be digging back in to, say, giving clearer direction on a global level um, because Europe and the U.K. absolutely is light years ahead of the U.S., but there's still um, a lot that can be done, and it still needs to be done um, at the highest level of government and leadership and so there's a little bit of inconsistency between the different chapters and we need to kind of bring in more structure and consistency
0: yeah so earlier you used the phrase like examine life Um, and I guess somebody in your position who's you know basically sticking their head above the parapet and, and like being very visible in this in this conversation can be a bit of a target in this sort yeah. of thing how, how do you handle that especially with the lifestyle that we all lead you know yeah. that, that come that come with attendant environmental you know damage if you like how totally. I, I think it's something that a lot of people in our little world as you would well know like really really struggle with right like how you can actually yeah. reconcile the two you know snowboarding surfing whatever it is with this kind of wider issue so how what are your thoughts on that
1: well, thank you for asking the question. Since we've talked this much environmentally, um, and you know, I just got off of a transatlantic flight um, to to my um, you know. So I I travel. Uh, well, it's the
0: easy target thing that as is well, isn't it? You know, like anyone that speaks about these issues gets shit for it. Basically, if you. Well,
1: I guess. I mean first and foremost, you know, as I was sitting like back middle of the plane and, and I can go anywhere in the world. I have a you know, it's funny. I have all these contracts with travel budgets and they're like submit your expenses to da, done. Da, da. You know, it's like I had like $528 in expenses. I mean, I I've really like tried to I absolutely get on planes. I come to Europe twice a year. I make it count. I'll be here for indefinite amount of time um but it's you know i think that we get into this problem and we deal with it with snowmobilers and heli skiers and stuff and if you drive the wrong car and stuff and the reality is is like the snowmobile industry just to take it even you know say someone that has this motorhead vibe and it's like how can i snowmobile every day and care about the environment and i go to that snowmobile community and go you know what we need you you guys can be effective and snowmobiling is not what you know as an example what got us into this mess snowmobiling is not ruining the planet yeah i don't snowmobile i again i live a pretty hyper examined life but um it's something, you know, it's two thirds of global emissions come from 20 countries. And it's part of the fossil fuel industry's um, playbook is to get people yelling at each other and going, you're the problem, you're the problem, you're the problem. And that's just bullshit. And I think we need to stop being so hard on each other and, and going, you don't, you're not perfect you can't care about the environment because it's killing the environmental movement. By like, you don't, you shouldn't need to apply to care about the environment. You shouldn't need to um, fill out a resume and be approved to say, "I'm going to vote for climate champions." Um, and so this whole infighting deal, and and then as far as I know, I'm an easy target. I had to get past that and how i personally deal with it is i just i don't i don't read comments cuz the saddest thing for me would be you know i'm very passionate about this and if i you know and i am a sensitive person so if i read comments it upsets me and then i'm worried about it affecting me going you know what i feel really strong about something but i am not going to post about it because i'm going to get a bad comment from some sixty year old white guy in Texas, and he's going to call me a hypocrite and it would be really um sad if if that guy then changed
0: your view my view yeah see because you've got the platform I mean that's the thing you know regardless of what you do yeah and how you do it, you do have this platform, so I guess in a way it's that's more important right and and using the platform, and also it looks to me like you've change your approach and how correct that is like over the years with you know with the projects that you do with the snowboarding that you do seems like it's been becoming more accountable yeah i mean for, 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 for want of a better word
1: you know my goal as a human is to every year try to be better than the year before right and it's just a very simple bar now it's getting a little trickier for me um and, but I, you know, still am able to say that I've been going in that direction. Um, and having an international company, you know, there's that component to it, but that's why it's also really important for me when I started Jones, I'm like, it has to be 1% for the planet. It has to operate under these certain terms and if it doesn't work that's fine it's got to work under certain terms that i am at peace with um, but yeah i you know i understand um, all too well the impacts of um, my footprint and, and and it pains me and then quite frankly though you know when i came out with deeper which was at that time i'd made a career out of basically taking helicopters and making movies with helicopters and I went to this foot-powered approach, and I made the movie. And I literally I calculated about seventy interviews, and every one of them was I had the question. So you hate helicopters
0: now, <laughs> <laughs> right? And that that literal this foot-powered
1: <laughs> um, approach was, yeah, I it comes from an examined life and, and, you know, it it just didn't sit that great with me to be, you know, I was so excessive with helicopter use, but make no mistake about it at the heart of it was, I'm like, man, the highs I am getting from hiking these mountains is I'm getting so much more out of that than taking a helicopter to the top. And if that wasn't like the top line and I'm out there hiking these mountains going, Man, I'd love to um, <laughs> be on a helicopter, but it's bad for the environment. Yeah. Like that, that it was like a byproduct. The
0: two went that. hand in hand. It yes. was it was a personal evolution.
1: And like, O oh, demure. Yeah. It's not that I'm like that stuff. I'm obsessed with backyard discoveries. And yeah. Like, that is what, why I am staying fit. That's what's getting me out of bed early. I love the idea. I can drive to a trailhead and walk into the mountains and see huge chunks of terrain for the first time and have it nothing to do with, I got to get on a plane I got to fly to the other side of the world to do that. And I am, and you see in the movie how happy I am. And by all standards, the snow sucks. Like that snow would never make it.
0: Well, I was going to, I was going to bring that up. I was going to say two things on that. Firstly, the third theme of this film, which I mentioned, is, is a love letter to the Sierras. I mean, that's, that, right. that, that should be said because it clearly yeah, is. Totally. And, 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 and that's obviously a life's work, really, for you, isn't it? In that way, you know, that, that exploration of that. But yeah, the snow, I mean, that was the other thing I really thought it's, it's noticeable. You wouldn't have seen that in a Snowboard film. Not at all. Like, and you just wouldn't have seen it. Like, it wouldn't. It wouldn't yeah. I, I thought oh, that it was. Would have,
1: it would have never made it anywhere. And. and and the rea- and I didn't have a problem with it because I'm like that's the snowboarding that we do like we're, those mountains are big they get a shit ton of wind um, that's just like average Sierra snowboarding
0: that's that's what it is
1: and but it's the snowboarding I do a ton of and I didn't realize till I was like halfway through the trip and Easter comes up and Easter marks a day um, that I have had twenty. Easter's in Alaska in the best, most beautiful sloughing spines you can imagine. And I'm like, wow, this is like, it just was this moment in time where I'm like, I am so, um, captivated by the snowboarding that I'm doing at that time. Yeah. And it couldn't be further than a beautiful sunset spine line in Alaska. But And that's, I I feel so fortunate to have that love.
0: Yeah, I remember, I mean, I've interviewed you a couple of times over the years for for different magazines and stuff, and you've always been, like, super consistent about that. I I remember, like, one of the questions I asked you years ago was about that, and you were like, it's about riding any conditions. Yeah. It's not about just riding the the beautiful photogenic powder line. You know, like, the reality of the backcountry is, it's all kinds of conditions, and that's the reality of it. And you, all, you also were saying like, and that was kind of the point, of Jones, as well. The brand, like, yeah. to represent that, you know, it's a really nice line note to me, where you say like, the older you get, the older you like your snow. Yeah, totally. And that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? You know.
1: Yeah, and the stability of it, and of, you know, I, yeah, the the piece that you know we're really far from help, and I, so those conditions, they're normal. People can relate to them, and I've always felt like. If you need perfect powder to have fun snowboarding, you're in the wrong
0: it's pretty sport. <laughs> and, then,
1: and the thing is, with the Sierra, and as I've toured with the film, it's like, yeah, I'm in love with the Sierra, but it, the Sierra, you, I could have made that film in the Alps. I could have made it at any mountain range. I mean, that's it's not. I'm not. You know, they going. Oh my God! You guys all got to come and check out the Sierra. I yeah. Mean, it's, that that shit's everywhere. Yeah. Um, it, especially Europe, man, you know, like if the mountains here just continue to blow me away, but what it puts into light is, you know, and I'm not there going, Oh my God, the Sierra is the most perfect place in the world to go snowboarding. I mean, the, you stack it up to the Alps and I, it's fun. I used to always argue with, um, with um the europeans were like oh you guys always ride powder we don't get that in europe and i'm like dude you guys got the best
0: snowboarding in the world <laughs> and i feel that way
1: um we're just good movie makers and
0: <laughs> yeah yeah um we should talk about the crew because yeah. it you know you you always put together interest in riding partners and so alan height what what was the what was the thinking Quite a left field, really. You yeah,
1: know. it was funny because my buddies were like, "You're bringing who?" You know, like I yeah, know these guys that I ride with a lot, and they're like, "Like we're doing this trip, making a movie, and I'm bringing Elena Height." Um, but no, I really, um, I'd gotten to know Elena through Protect Our Winners, and I really wanted um, to bring someone that was, it would be a new experience. And I knew that she was, and we talked before, cause we both work with cliff bar and I saw her a couple times in the fall and she was, you know, in that pre Olympic, like focus and intensity. And I'm like, we got going to go split boarding after this, all this Olympic BS and whether she had won a medal or didn't make it. Um, cause I'm like, you'll need to go split boarding. Okay? Yeah no matter what happens at the Olympics, um, she didn't make it and she was hurting. And, um, I called her up five days before the trip and, you know, her phone hadn't rung that much. And, um, uh, and timely. Yeah. Let's go. And, you know, and, and, all these trips, it's like getting to the trail is the hardest part. And so she's like, where are we going? I'm like, don't worry. Just, I'll keep you up. And I gave her very little info. Um, and so yeah we brought her and i thought that it was like i want i knew that she was suffering from the olympics and at this interesting point in her career and i just wanted to see um how wilderness affected her and it was very hard for me actually to not like lead the witness like right. i really wanted her to that's interesting to so come got, to it on her own
0: and, and that was an important element of the film presumably to have that presence it's not like this super experienced individual in that environment right
1: yeah and how it works on it and what's funny is i've known elena a little bit for a long time but i really didn't know her career and as we get going um in the mountains and i'm watching her do this snowboarding i'm like so what what, when did you first you know when was your first pro contest 12 years old went to the olympics at 16 and i'm like all right, now I get it. Like I'm dealing with like a super phenom um, because there's very few people, male or female, that can walk into that world, never been on crampons, never winter camped and handle it. She looked she pretty
0: looked. comfortable, I must say. She
1: was um, annoyingly comfortable. Yeah. There's like, <laughs> I think you're
0: saying, there's one part, don't you? You're like, oh, she's actually getting a bit annoying now. But like she, and there's a couple of bits where she's obviously out of her comfort zone, but she just sort of, is is impressive how she handled it.
1: She's very tough. Yeah. Like, and, like, strong-headed and, yeah, just really a phenom-level yeah. snowboarder is what I came to terms with because just side-hilling, what have you, you know, her relationship with the metal edge to snow, like, and give her a pointer and boom, done.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then Schneide. So yeah, the so Sia- Schneide, The Sierra Phantom, as you were The Sierra <laughs> Phantom.
1: Um, you know, I am... Like I just naturally um, surround myself with experienced people and especially what's interesting from the get-go when I went on this foot-powered approach, largely um, my riding partners became not pro snowboarders. You know, the best say backcountry skiers and snowboarders are not in the industry and schneide is um
0: well we all know him, don't we you know in the resorts they've been there since day one they just turn up every day and they're the best guys you know
1: totally and they're like live it and so it's he was a natural no-brainer you know we're doing an ambitious trip schneide's coming
0: yeah well I, i looked up one of our old interviews and um I asked you about Jones. It's about seven years ago. And you, I'm going to read, you said we're a niche brand. One thing that's never died in snowboarding is the passionate riders at the serious resorts. They've been there from day one, whether or not the media thought they were cool. Right now, we're a little bit cool, but we'll be uncool again in a few years. I mean, that's it right there, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I, it. Our focus is on... I want to... Um, if I look, you know, our goal is to have presence in the best lift line tram lines around the world with the best riders that like they bleed snowboarding um and that's kind of been our focus that's our customer and it's a niche deal and i think but not just feels right i always i have so much respect for those people it's ambitious they have high demands um but if they're backing what we're doing then that's really all i need for you know to be um that's the ultimate compliment
0: yeah i mean it's as the sport's growing and getting older and we're all getting older that that is becoming snowboarding as well, isn't it? More and more, you know, like when we were, we were talking earlier with, with a friend and we were saying that and it's a common theme, this but you know, it was always aimed in a weird place. Wasn't it like the market of snowboarding? It was always aimed at, didn't really cater for this heart of snowboarding that you're talking about for a long time, but it seems to change now.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, I feel like forever, like a expert snowboarder snowboarded 10 days a year. And if you, you know, we're snowboarding a ton,
0: companies didn't value you. Um, Did you feel that as a, as a professional snowboarder? Was that one of the reasons behind Jones?
1: Um, I felt it in the sense of companies not wanting to put R&D into high-end product, meaning like product for people that snowboard
0: more than 30 days a year. Sure. So that so it, it had that that purpose as well then, the establishment of Jones. Yeah,
1: I mean, we absolutely, we just, again, we just want, um, and I built this community around what I consider like the local heroes because I think um, they carry so much respect um, in these local communities and they're part of the local communities and I love um, being immersed in the local communities in these cool and what's exciting is whether it's france switzerland japan the u.s canada you name it by and large um those communities are very similar it's like we we may use different words but we speak the same language yeah
0: and again you you know like you travel you, you you see it don't you it's the same like you say it's the same language and the same reference points and the same goals that everybody's got basically
1: Yeah, and those are my peers. Those are always the people that I've looked up. I've looked up to that local 100-day-a-year rider more than, you know, really these pros, and you see it. Um, And for sure, there's great examples of, like, true, you know, what I would consider pros, but the big thing with Jones and when I'm working with riders, I'm like, who's the guy that, or the female, that is going to snowboard, snowboard is, is going to be a huge part of their life, whether they get a paycheck or not. Yeah. That's the Jones DNA. That's my DNA. You know, people used to ask me all the time, what am I going to do when I'm done snowboarding?
0: They don't <laughs> ask me that anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They know the answer now. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so like I said earlier, I don't normally do this, but I did put a shout on Instagram cool. and, and I got a lot of questions. So I've picked a few out if you're up for it. Yeah, I I thought it might be quite nice to um, just hit you with some of these, really. So how would you recommend people get into big mountain riding if they're normal resort riders?
1: That's funny. I was thinking about it today. Um, Immerse yourself in the community. That means local slideshows, local avalanche fundraisers. Um, Understand the AVI report when it goes to low, which is generally May and June. Go to well known zones, stay really close to tracks, um, work with local guides. Uh, you can learn a ton from them and just start really slow. There's a ton of information out there, and understanding when it's, um, you know, you can kind of jump on, you know, dive into the backcountry. You don't ever really want to be putting in new, tra- you know, in, in I can't totally speak to Europe, but in the US, we have these known trailheads now that are almost like side countries. So sure. go to these known trailheads, stay on the tracks, um, and just get started. Uh, it's like the first step's the
0: hardest step. That was from Akex Money. I'm guessing that's not his real name. Um, Graham McClennan asked, what current projects are you working on? What can we expect to see in 2019 and 2020? Um, so
1: have a couple things in the works, hopefully getting in the mountains with Matt Schar is working on a new movie. Um, so we'll see, you know, that might go down next week, but, um, have an IMAX film in the works that oh, I'm part do. of. Yeah. Torabright's the, the star. Um, oh
0: wow. That sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a, the exact opposite of ode to mirror in the sense of, Really big cameras.
0: <laughs> is that she done been down, been down in Chile or something recently? Yeah, pop- she was in
1: Antarctica for
0: it, so it's oh wow, um, so proper proper job.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a bi- it'd be the biggest budget snowboard film that I've been a part of, um, which I have mixed emotions on it, but it is a great opportunity. And then uh, Brian Aguchi and I um, are trying to do this trip this trek through North America's biggest wilderness um, and make a film on it and uh, that's kind of starts in Wyoming ends in Montana and really would be an evolution from that Ode to approach
0: okay what's that what's the is there a trail you're going to follow or
1: it's not a trail it's just um, there's this it's really through the heart of Yellowstone and you can actually there's a spot in there where you were at, like we will camp 10 days in on the trip, we will be in a um, spot where we are literally in the most um, remote part of the country, wow. furthest away from any roads. Really? Okay. In the lower 48. Wow. Uh, so hopefully that comes about, but that's on the top of the list.
0: Right. Yeah. It sounds like a nice extension of, of that project. Yeah. They've got, a, they've got a nice evolution, haven't they? Like the, the projects that you've been doing, like you say, like Life of Glide, Ode to Muir, like this this you know wider journey really into this kind of bigger theme
1: yeah I mean as a movie maker and a snowboarder I don't like to duplicate stories yeah um, it was funny because you know higher I could have made higher two three four and five and raised you know funded those things yeah I'm really sure, simple sure there was
0: an appetite for that right
1: and then and it's the way the world works is you know life a glide really hard to fund um, Make it, I could have made Life of Glide 2, had the money instantly. Right. Ode to Mirror, super hard to fund. I could do Ode to Mirror 2, pretty simple as far as raising money. But, but wanna... I love that space of like telling a story that we haven't told before. Do you want to push yourself in
0: that way? And, and... Yeah,
1: as a, as a filmmaker, I love that, like, you know, the Ode to Mirror stuff, Life of Glide, you know, Life of Glide based on a poem I wrote. Um, like, am I really making a. <laughs> <laughs> Low angle um, snowboard movie with on uh, based on a poem and then Ode to mirror, like again like those things definitely kept me up at night and was right. terrifying really but I like that terrifying space because it's a challenge yeah and they you know and it's an idea that with all films I learned you know when you're making deeper further higher. Or, you know, cleaned up versions of each other. And so by the time Hire came out, I felt pretty good about it and in the editing process. But when you go, you know, Life of Glide sucked for a long time. Ode to sucked for a long time of like, is this, right? like, are we going to release this? Right, and, right. and that's part of the process. And Hire sucked for a long time, but I'm like, oh, this will come together in the end because we knew how to make that style of film. With Life of Glide and Ode to Mirror, you're like, man, is we, are we going to be able to pull this all together? Um, and yeah, I think the most nervous I've ever been at a film was um, the Ode Tamir premiere.
0: Really? Yeah. I mean, almost sick to my stomach. Because what you just didn't have a clue how it was going to land.
1: Yeah. And we, so we're doing a sound check for it. And Ode to Mirror, we baked in like huge chunks of silence. Um, where it's like, we're just walking and there's nothing going on. So when you do a sound check, you go and you got the movie up, up and you're watching these two minute sections. And, and at that point I hadn't seen the film in a while because it they'd been in post-production and, um, and we're watching the film and it's, I'm in the sound check and I'm like, Oh my God, what, what were we doing? Um, <laughs> uh, like w- this Does not look right. And I was with a friend who had never seen the film. Right. And he's sitting over my shoulder watching these three-minute sections of nothing, basically. Right. And I'm like, fuck, (laughs) this is not good. Opposed to like a traditional snowboard movie, you can watch any two-minute section and it's flying off the screen.
0: Yeah, you can get the gist, right? Yeah. So your friend's like, yeah, it's it's, it's really good. It's (laughs) really slow,
1: dude. And then, you know... And then watching at the premiere, it's like, okay, people are laughing where they're supposed to laugh. And you could just feel the intensity in the room, and um, it it worked.
0: It's like the old story of Star Wars. You know that one? When he showed a rough cut to all the directors. And because they hadn't finished the dogfight scenes in space, they used Second World War dogfight scenes. Okay. And basically, George Lucas showed, showed that cut, and everybody was like, this is shit. (laughs) And and supposedly, the the, the story goes, only two people that said it was going to be a smash was Spielberg. Oh, no way. And De Palma were like, No way. Yeah.
1: Oh, I'd love that story.
0: Um, Right. So, the edit, so that's a huge part of it, by the sounds of it, this post production, like getting the vision. Oh, yeah. Editing is hands down the hardest part of making the films. Right. That's interesting. Because it's something that you just, with snow, there's so much like focus on the shot in snowboarding, isn't there? getting the shot, setting up the shot, getting there. It's almost like you kind of forget the work after that. You know what I mean? Like, especially Uh, for the layman, you know?
1: Yeah. And then again, if you're not, if you're trying to break new ground and not duplicate a formula that you know works, then that's a terrifying place, but it's an exciting place too.
0: Yeah. Okay. I had this one a few times on the environmental tip. Um, People are really interested in what actual physical evidence you've seen of, of the, the, the yep. change to the environment and climate that we've been discussing. Anything to to mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really everywhere. Um, from, you know, we kind of have this new normal, for example, just in my hometown, like we seemingly, you know, we're super upbeat. Everyone's really excited. And, and it's like the, feels like this awesome winter. We're in, but it's like we're at, at the base elevation, we're at a 50% winner top elevation. We're at a 98% winner, meaning a hundred percent would be average. Sure. Um, well, but the, well, y-
0: last, last descents. I mean, what the fuck that like, you talk about yeah. that in the film? I mean, what, that, like, what, what, what kind of fucked up concept is that? Totally. To and even, it's to all even, over to even be talking about.
1: And you, you know, in Europe and the Alps, especially, um, as, really you know anywhere that's like pretty tied to heavily tied to glaciers oh chamonix chamonix i went and like, now the mountains are um falling apart you know pika yeah we're talking to him and he's like dude guiding in the summer you know yeah he he's like oh it was very relaxing you get on rock
0: yeah it's not moving but nab said the same actually he spoke to a about this last year so he's actually thinking of giving up guiding in the summer it's just too It's gotten
1: really sketchy there. This permafrost is melting Yeah, and the rock fall. And and as Pika said, it's like, it's not on like known, like, yeah, it's kind of a loose zone. He's like, there is like what we consider bomber granite. Yeah. And huge chunks of it are coming
0: down. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I went sort of six years between trips to Chamonix. And even in that time, which is obviously like an absolute speck, Right in in the lifespan of these glaciers. I mean, you could physically see it. You could like yeah. you could see it. I mean, yeah, Alaska,
1: same way. You know, it's like deeper we go to this place, the Spine Institute. You know, and and that's a scenario where we're up really high on a high glacier in an incredibly snowy area. Um, and I was talking to the pilot, and he's like, "Yeah, that landing's no longer there. It's all broken ice now." Really um so they're it's sadly everywhere
0: okay this one's from three good lines what's next from a product perspective because jones is known for its innovative products especially like the collabs with you know on the surf influence shapes and this kind of thing
1: uh, yeah um god i mean it's just You know what we call our ode to progression is all things can be made better either through um, design or material stagnation is not an option Uh, what we're most excited is um, we've been working on this for a long time just from that we have this super sap resin in our whole line now Um, that was kind of we've made some great progress with the fsc wood cores and the top sheets and you know, these water-based inks and so on and so forth. But, um, the resin has been the biggest challenge for us. And we took a big step forward with that. So, um, excited about that. And then we have a new flagship coming out, which that's one board that I, that that's really my high performance board that change with that board need, you know, we, Prototyped like at a level we've never prototyped to make that change because you're dealing with this really refined piece of equipment. Um, so that's kind of the immediate evolution right now.
0: This one's from Jeremy Biggin. Um, you've got a family. Yep. Um, How's that changed your approach to risk? Has that been a factor?
1: Yeah, I think the um, the family stuff has definitely pro, uh, changed my deal with risk I mean I've always really respected risk um, I've always enjoyed my life I always had a wife that I wanted to come home to but the main thing is, is I'm having so much fun snowboarding with my kids that the thought of missing out on that would be devastating
0: and does that change, change? I mean it's a really obvious question but I'm going to ask it anyway that's changed your own relationship to snowboarding I imagine like yeah. being able to ride with them
1: Yeah, would it, and it's wild as an industry, like now that I have kids, I'm blown away that we don't talk about how incredible of a family sport it is. And if you're a father, um, you know, having kids is this powerful, beautiful thing and you want to do, it's kind of like you'll go to any means to have like these wonderful real experience with your kids and as a family that's gets them off of devices and all that BS. And then to realize that the sport that I've loved more than anything is actually the coolest thing we do as a family is this like, holy shit, I thought snowboarding was cool before, but it's actually (laughs) like way more cool and it's way more important than I ever imagined.
0: Yes. It broadens as you get older. That's a great thing. About it though, isn't it the fact that we're all—it's it's new territory, really. You know, the older surfers, you know, and the older snowboarders, really, still only young. Yeah. So this is all bro- this broadening, this evolution of everyone's relationship. Relationship to it. it's kind of happening in real time, isn't it's it? It's
1: almost, you know, like I look at myself as part of. Um, I'm kind of right in the middle of the biggest era of snowboarders, meaning you know, kind of came up through the '90s and uh, and. We've had this big gap in snowboarding, and there's not a ton of twenty-two-year-old snowboarders. But now, this era that I've been a part of, now we have kids that are all you know eight, 10 years old that are representing. There is an amazing batch of eight-year-olds and ten-year-olds, um, and you know, in that kind of zone, and there's a second coming of snowboarding.
0: Yeah, you seen that? You-
1: it's uh, without doubt. And, it, and I would get asked like snowboardings dying and yeah, it was a six years ago, eight years ago. It would have been like, yeah, you, you know, yeah, no question. The sport's shrinking. I think it's shrinking more than the numbers show. And I was pretty pessimistic on like, yeah, it's going to get smaller, get ready. Um, and, and I'm fine with small. I don't think supporting <laughs> doesn't, doesn't
0: you know, need bigger, big. doesn't
1: need to mean better. So I'm not this growth at all costs person, But I can say without doubt, we got a batch, Uh, we got a generation coming up, and um, they're—I think—they're going to do great things with the sport. You know, they're just looking at their parents and what they did, and and how these kids are being raised. They're artists, they're musicians. Yeah, they—they're there's just so many really cool eight-year-old snowboarders in the world right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing skating and surfing, right? Same with these other sports. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Last one because it's uh, it's dinner time, isn't it? Um, I've got to ask it. It was the most popular question. Have you seen the kayak ad where you were given an English voice? No, I need to see it. Have what you it? Not, have you not seen that?
1: Yeah, what is the name of it?
0: So it's kayak. The, the oh,
1: oh, yeah, yeah. The kayak. Com- I heard about that.
0: Yes, that did, was hilarious. Did you? Um, I, mean, I did not get to see it. I need you, to see it. You need to see it. But people were pissed. Well, people were just like because you're obviously really well known in the UK. And everyone was like, what the fuck is that about? <laughs> did, they, did, did they ask you about that?
1: So I was super busy um, and I did voiceover for it. And the director of the um, commercial felt like my voiceover was
0: flat. Right. Is that and what it was? And so you thought i know what i'll do i'll put an english guy on yeah there. so they and, and i was like i don't have
1: time to re-record it um and so and they were like oh my god well, you know they're kind of all over me going we got to get you back in the sound studio and i'm like hilarious. i'm out man you know i was off doing my thing It's hilarious i'm like i can give you time in may basically and and then I didn't hear anything. And right. I'm like, well, they must have figured out
0: I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that it was... And it, as soon as I turn this tape off, I'm going to get you a link. And, <laughs> We're going to watch it. And
1: then, um, yeah. And then so I didn't hear anything of it. I'm like, cool, whatever. I don't know what they did, if they're not going to do them or they used my... And it wasn't like... I mean, I spent three hours in a sound booth doing the VO. Right. So it wasn't like it totally sucked. Um, and I got a laugh out of it because um i saw it on social media like
0: yeah you must have got loads of messages about that right? i
1: did yeah and i and quite frankly, you know i'm like oh what the (laughs) someone (laughs) made the wrong call and that is hilarious not really my yeah problem and so i got a kick out of it and i think that um it was cool to see that like the uk like the passion on like you guys are blown it like why isn't it his voice i thought i got a kick out of it yeah i mean i I appreciated all the hate on it yeah
0: (laughs) yeah jeremy thank you man you're welcome two years after we first talked about it we got there got there in the end yes um big pleasure man thank you thank you so there you go that was my long-awaited conversation with the great jeremy jones i hope you enjoyed that one gotta say thanks to jeremy for being such a great sport really enjoyed our conversation, which is all the good ones do, took on a life of its own and became about so much more than just snowboarding. You might have noticed some increasing noise in the background. So we did this one at Jeremy's hotel and there were some friends and colleagues in the bar getting stuck into the beers um, and getting louder and louder as it went on. So I hope that wasn't too off-putting. Anyway, if you found our conversation about John Muir interesting and want to investigate some of the other themes we explored please do head over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Like I say, you're going to find extensive show notes, as well as all the uh, back catalogue of episodes, as I said at the top. All right, housekeeping corner time. Big thanks to everyone who got in touch after Nicholas Walken with suggestions for guests I can interview while I'm in California with my pal Owen Tozer. Got a massive old long list now, and we're very much looking forward to that trip. But keep them coming. If you can think of anyone that we should check out, Let's hear it because I've already booked in a couple off the back of uh, listener suggestions, which is great. So, yeah, like I said earlier, one thing that's been on my mind recently is vocal tics and the way that I've really, really started to repeat myself occasionally on the show. I did get a shot across the bows about this last year from some extremely miffed man on Instagram. Obviously, it was a man, probably the guy who gave me two stars on iTunes, actually, who was all like, why do you keep saying it's a good interview? Please allow us to make up our own minds. Obviously, I apologized for uh, daring to have an opinion about the free podcast apart every week or so and how it appeared to have upset him so much. But he kind of had a point. I mean, I do repeat myself Toza mentioned it the other day. It's definitely becoming a bit of a standing joke. Just how much I go on about the old snowboarding marketing age thing. I guess it's inevitable, though, really. I mean, occasionally I listen to distraction pieces with Scroobius Pit and I'm almost at the point of playing taboo bingo with Pip whenever he interviews an actor or director just to see how long before he mentions that he appeared in taboo with his mates Tom Hardy and Stephen Graham my point is perhaps a certain amount of this stuff is inevitable I mean I'm on episode 69 or something I reckon I've done pretty well so far to keep it this fresh but it's happening so I'm going to keep an eye on it and if you clock something then let me know I need all the help I can get with this one Elsewhere happy to report that I'm now on Spotify bit annoying actually because it was actually a complete piece of piss and question of just filling out a web form with my RSS feed address. It took about two minutes to get on Spotify. Um, Granted, I'd not checked for about six months if they'd changed it. So if you run a podcast, you want to get on Spotify. It's really easy. Just go and do it. So uh, if that's your preferred means of podcast consumption, you're in luck fill your boots they're all on there all the bonus ones as well um yeah check it out anyway that's it for now started to build up a bit of a backlog actually so expect to see an increase in the frequency of forthcoming podcasts especially as i think i have finally found a decent editor to work with who's going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting from this point which is a relief i must say but anyway enjoy the week i'll see you next time nice one